Hey everyone, my name is Gautam Iyer and this is AndBeyond.how. On this episode, I'll be speaking to Ramesh Balasubramaniam, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of California in Merced. He does some incredible research on the human nervous system and the movement of the human body. And you can find a lot of his work and findings at www.rameshlab.com. I definitely recommend checking the website out. There are some really interesting papers and experiments to look into. Our conversation will focus on the job, exploring what the role of a professor truly is, and on the education side, answering the question of what it takes to be a professor. Hope you learned something new. Enjoy. I'm Ramesh Balasubramaniam. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of California in Merced. Merced is the 10th of the University of California campuses. Okay, so just to get this out of the way, something that I really don't have a lot of knowledge in is just the the idea of being a professor. And you're actually the first professor that I've had a chance to speak with. So in general, your role as a professor, is your role more more teaching or is it more research oriented? That's a very good question because I mean, a lot of times when people um, assume what a professor is, it's largely sort of classroom work. Uh, but the truth is I'm actually in the classroom uh, less than 20% of my uh, working day um, and, and many times probably even less than that. So my job is actually to further knowledge in my field, uh, which is by way of research and by way of building uh, institutional capacity through uh, education in order to achieve that. So I could say um, the job is fantastic. It really feels like you're on vacation all the time because uh, you are your own boss and you kind of create things as you move along. Most people who are in the academic profession as professors in research-intensive universities, such as the University of California, um, typically do um, about a third of their time teaching, about half of their time doing research, and about 20% of their time working on aspects of education and providing service uh, to students or their community or their profession uh, or working for the scientific community. So, for example, I mean, if there's a professor working on uh, geosciences, they might spend 20% of their time uh, doing work in the public interest on, say, climate change and climate communication. Uh, so a person like me might spend about 20% of their time doing things related to uh, outreach, you know, trying to make sure that the work we do is just not confined to the laboratory, but uh, that that the general public uh, benefits from some of my work. So essentially, you, you do work and that is disseminated in findings to the public. It's not, it's not for certain people. So um, that's a very good question. So majority of what we communicate is to the scientific community because uh, the kind of people who appreciate our results are usually other trained scientists who review our work. But the work gets into these professional journals, which are wonderful for scientists. But if that work needs to reach the general public, so let's say I've discovered something about uh, Parkinson's disease, and this work could have an enormous impact on people living with that disease in the world, then um, I have to take the, the trouble, the effort, to actually take these scientific findings and make sure that they reach the right stakeholders, the right community. Um, many academics um, don't do that, but a large number of academics do, which is trying to make sure that there is a, a major translational component 
to what they do in their laboratories and uh, in, in their uh, scientific space. Okay, so it is the role of the of the scientist or the person working in the field to get the findings to whoever whoever they should be getting it to. Correct. Okay. And sometimes the, these things happen very naturally because sometimes your work might have uh, commercial implications. So let's say you're working on developing a new technology. Uh, you might be able to commercialize the technology and then that technology will reach someone. So let's say you're working on a topic like, I don't know, cloud computing. Uh, you make some fundamental discoveries in your lab and then you get that thought out there and then maybe a company or maybe someone will buy that technology and transfer it and get it to the people. But in the case of something like, um, let's say neuroscience where, you know, the brain obviously is something we all have and the results are of great importance to everyone. It's really important for us to make sure that these results are communicated to the public, um, either directly or indirectly. And, and we rely um, even I mean, on science journalists sometimes to do that job for us. But, but community outreach is a, is a, significant part of um, of what many of us at least would like to do and uh, and I'd say I spend about um, you know twenty percent of my time doing things like that that's that's interesting because I spoke to a health economist who works at Rand and uh, she spoke about how most of her work is is oriented towards the government and how a lot of the findings are given to the government or occasionally private organizations that ask for the work. Um, and so I guess in a similar similar line, the work you do is that work that is done to is, is that work that's done to answer the question of some group or is that work that you do yourself because you want to provide solutions to like a certain problem that you see? Mm-hmm. So that's a very good question again. So it, there are, these are important choices that any, uh, professor, uh, has to make. Um, one is, I mean, I have something that I call my research program. Uh, this is what I'm paid to do in my laboratory. Um, but in order to get that work funded, I need to raise money. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of running a business inside the university, except that this business does not have a profit motive. But this business has a knowledge discovery motive. So um, some of the findings that I have are likely to be very fundamental. So, for example, I might discover something about the anatomy of a region, uh, about how cells in a certain part of the brain work. And that work might be of interest more to the scientific community than to the general public. But if I'm able to you know, extract some information from those cells and I'm able to drive something else, something I do. For example, I take information from cells and it's called the motor cortex in the brain and I drive uh, a motor like a robot arm in, in trying to get some kind of a brain machine interface going. That work becomes of great interest to multiple people. So for example, someone who's interested in self-driving cars might be interested in eventually having a car that could be driven just purely by using your thoughts. So they might want to lock in to those results and take it further. But my reason for getting into it might not be with the translational idea in mind. It can just be because I'm interested in how these cells work. Um, and so there are many scientists who work just on the fundamental aspect of how these cells work. 
And I think it's very important for society to invest in just that. So from that, we can learn things about how to translate that knowledge into technology, into um, things for helping people who have problems with those cells, um, both in terms of sort of you know, biomedical technologies and, uh, and things like that, as well as technologies like, like what I mentioned, I think like self-driving cars. So, um, so th there really are two agendas. One is my scientific agenda, which is just like, what do I need to do to make these fundamental discovery about these cells? And then there is my kind of broader agenda, which is, um, who can benefit from this? And how do I make sure that the people who can benefit from this get to find out about this right away? Right. Okay. And, um, and, and I work on uh, a bit of both. So looking specifically at, at your laboratory, the sensory motor neuroscience laboratory, just to clarify, mm -hmm. is that where you do all of your work or is that just a facet of the work that you do working in that laboratory? Actually, that is uh, the lab where I do uh, all of my work. Okay. So I have uh, a group of students and, and postdocs that work for me. And these are people who are training to become independent scientists in this area. And they use my lab as sort of a, an important training ground where they can learn the skills that they can take to go on to become independent researchers elsewhere. And I as remember I was, talking, I was talking about funding. And so I have to raise money to support these people. And I have to raise money to support my research program. Uh, and a good amount of this comes from the federal government. A lot of it comes from industry. Um, and a lot of it comes from um, my university itself. Just just out of curiosity, so the gov the the funding from the federal government is that fu is that funding given to to Merced because it's a UC school, or does that funding go to any school? Um, obviously, in varying amounts that that are engaged that are engaging in R and D of some kind. Right. So anyone can apply for federal funding as long as they're in an institution. Uh, that's legitimate and is recognized by the federal government. Um, and it's extremely competitive to get federal funding. Um, and, and it's important to say that in this political climate because um, so the success rate for getting grants from the federal government uh, for, for fundamental science uh, are is sort of like 5 to 10%. So less than 10% of people that apply for these grants actually get them. And it goes into a national competition and a, and a, pan, and a group of you know, eminent scientists kind of decide which ones get funded and which ones don't. So um, the research that I have funded has been vetted through our community of scientists. Um, and it is through their recommendation that the federal government funds it. So the money I get is for a particular project. And I mean, I, and, and there's, a, there's usually a specific call that comes out from the federal government. Uh, for proposals, we send in we send in these proposals, and then uh, it goes through an intense round of competitions, um, and 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 in that competitive round, they decide which grants get funded, um, and then once you get funded, you get funded for a certain period of time, uh, and you can only get your grants renewed on a competitive basis again. Um, so. Um, a anyone in 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 in, a, in an American institution can apply for uh, funding from the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy or the Department of Defense, depending on what you know your applications are. Uh, but very few of them actually get it. 
So, um, so anyone, like a person like me, uh, when I apply for funding, I mean, I'm, I'm called the principal investigator on a project. Um, I'm the principal investigator on five or six uh, federally funded projects uh, that are ongoing right now. I actually, I, I was under the impression that the funding came directly from the federal government through the California system. So that's interesting. No, the funding actually comes directly to the investigator. Okay. Um, I mean, it's mediated. I mean, it comes through my institution because the institution keeps my money. Um, I mean, and I, I, you know, and the money gets, um, uh, I mean, I, I have to bank the money in my institution. Okay. Right. Right. Going so if, for example, I, I, I leave this position and I go to a different institution, then the grant would, um, you know, a barring unusual circumstances usually go with the, with, with the PI or the principal investigator. Okay, so given that, is your role when you are the principal principal investigator, is does your role also then involve the financial oversight of the project? Yes, it does. So I am accountable for uh, all of the uh, managing the the budget and managing uh, how we spend money on on the project. Would you say that takes uh, up? Including... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say including you know paying personnel. Uh, buying equipment, uh, working on timelines for the project, all of that is something that I, I have to manage and, and the budget for the project itself. Yeah. Would you say that that takes up a significant chunk of time in your work? Yes. I'd say a, a good chunk of the research that I do involves sort of administering the research itself. Okay. Um, so, but, but I mean, I, I have, uh, broader agenda of the research in my head and like I kind of delegate specific projects to individuals I have a big idea of you know what the overall product will be like um, and so every professor uh, and this is true across all institutions in this country uh, usually does this it's, it's, it's an important part of what we do is uh, learning how to manage the research so I'm as much a um, a manager of the research as I am a researcher myself. I see. Okay. Uh, sorry to jump just a little bit. When when you were speaking earlier about the work you do in the laboratory, uh, as a researcher, when you when you're working with students within the laboratory, is that what what you consider the teaching part of your work, or does the teaching part come from like a classroom setting? Oh, that's a very very interesting question. So. Um, so there's teaching, which comes from mentoring the students who are doing the research and working through the research agenda with them and sparking uh, their creativity. That's that's one kind of teaching. And the other kind of teaching is what you know most people assume that is what professors do, which is go to a classroom and give a lecture um, or, or go to a laboratory and teach someone how to use a technique. Um, and I do a little bit of both. So um, I, I teach uh, large lecture classes. Um, where there's like a couple hundred students sitting there and I'm, I'm standing there clicking slides and, and explaining concepts to them. Um, but like I was saying, I, sort of less than 20% of my time is spent doing that. But a lot of my time, so even in the research enterprise, uh, as you've rightly kind of intuited, a good amount of you know, managing the research enterprise is sort of the administrative work, you know, even dealing with budget, things like that. But a lot, a lot of it is actually mentoring uh, the students and the trainees and the postdocs and trying to get them and, and overseeing their work and trying to make sure that um, they are seeing 
um, th their creative potentials being put to best use in in um, in the laboratory setting. I see. Okay. Do you? This is also out of curiosity. Do you find teaching, like mentoring in the laboratory, to be more effective than giving presentations and clicking through slides and whatnot? Yeah, uh, it, they serve very different purposes. So teaching in the classroom um, at the fundamental level is not, I don't think at least we don't have a system to replace that just yet. So if you want to learn calculus or if you want to learn basic anatomy or if you want to take uh, an introductory class on the American political system, you have to go to a classroom and you've got to learn. You've got to read textbooks and you've got to learn stuff. But if you are advanced and you've started uh, and let's say you're a biologist tra training to work with certain classes of proteins um, and you need to run assays in the laboratory, then it makes sense to kind of, you know, uh, apprentice yourself with uh, someone like a professor who's got many years of experience running that kind of laboratory. And in that setting, the mentoring and the one-on-one -on -one learning and learning in that kind of uh, creative environment um, you know, works best. Um, but there are many universities now that are playing with the idea of how to create the most optimal learning environment. For example, there are medical schools now that believe in something called problem-based learning, where they're replacing all of classroom work. So instead of learning anatomy in the classroom, um, you're given a problem. And the students who work in a group typically have to go and find solutions to that problem by talking to a variety of people and they're given, you know, and now, you know, you've got you know, tools like using the internet uh, and, and, and various other ways in which you can go and seek out that information. And these kinds of changes are happening in the educational system, but they're still not there to replace certain very fundamental things like, you know, um, if you want to learn algebra, it's probably best taught in a classroom. Or uh, we don't have a, a viable system yet to replace that model of pedagogical training. So um, I still do the, the old-fashioned pedagogical uh, teaching um, sometimes. Um, and I consider that to be quite different from the kind of teaching I do when I'm mentoring uh, a very advanced student who is looking to become uh, a professional in the field. I see. Okay. That the teaching that you do, whether that be in, in the classroom or in the, in the lab, uh, I'm not sure if this is common knowledge, but is that, is that, um, work you do with grad students specifically? The stuff I do in the lab is largely with grad students and also with postdoctoral fellows who are people either with an MD or a PhD who are training to become independent researchers on their own. But we also have a number of undergraduate students, some of our smarter um, and more advanced undergraduate students who are looking to go to grad school or who are looking to work in a research environment um, end up doing their undergraduate, um, like say their honors thesis in, in, in uh, our laboratories. Um, and so they get a very similar uh, kind of training that our grad students and postdocs get. Um, but but a far fewer percentage of our undergrads go through that compared to the ones who are in the more traditional classroom setting. So the graduates and the undergraduates are working side by side in the lab? 
Yes, and and usually what we do is we set up the system where the grad students uh, mentor the undergrads, uh, some of the postdocs mentor the grad students, uh, and I oversee that whole process. Um, and, and some people call this a sort of, it's a bit like an apprenticeship system where you learn from someone that's got a greater set of skills, who learns from someone that's even more seasoned in that area uh, with under the sort of overall tutelage uh, of the professor. I see. So it's more of a, it's more of like a guided mentor mentor system. Right. And, or you could call it like a, a, a collaborative learning environment okay. um, where different people help different people at various stages of their careers. Right. Uh, so moving on to some of your work specifically, rather your research uh, as of right now, what, so, so the lab, so the lab you work in, the Sensory Motor Neuroscience Laboratory, um, the, the website talks about how you're engaging in, in studies on human, on human cognitive ability, um, the dynamical systems and how they relate to human action. What, like, what, what is the crux, or rather, what is the fundamental question that, that you're trying to answer right now in, in the lab? So the most fundamental question that my lab seeks answers to is how does the brain move the body? So we've all got limbs, we've got you know fingers, we've got hands, we've got arms, we've got legs. Um, how does the brain issue um, simple neuronal motor commands to move the body? And so in a, in a nutshell, this is the problem that we're studying. Um, but where all the dynamics and control comes in is because um, when you're controlling an object of this kind, I mean, so if you can think of this as the human body is, 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 a, is, a, is a structure of robot, and you're trying to understand the control system, the, the, the brain uh, that drives how the, 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 the skeletal muscular system can move around. So I'm interested, or my laboratory is interested, in understanding how these movements come about. So the very simple task of if there's a, a glass of water in front of you, how do you reach forward and pick it up? So if you think about it, you've got to first locate the object. So you need some sensory information, which is, you know usually comes to you through your visual system. That information has to be converted into some kind of positional coordinates of where that object is. And then that gets decoded by your motor system. And then you have to move your elbow and your shoulder and your wrist joints in order to go grab that object. Um, so this seems simple enough, but if let's say there was damage to someone's brain, um, a huh. very simple task like reaching forward and grabbing a cup becomes extremely difficult for that person. Um, so what we're interested in is what kind of computations actually go on in the brain to enable these simple movements. And in order to understand this, we use two different methodologies. Uh, one is called EEG, or electroencephalography. So basically, I'm reading brain waves uh, by placing electrodes on a person's scalp. And by sort of careful analysis of those electrical recordings, I get a sense of what's going on underneath. Another technique that I use is called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation where you use a large magnetic field outside of the brain's surface um, to non-invasively stimulate a brain area. 
Um, so you can use this to either uh, put a, a bunch of neurons to sleep for a little while. So you can basically knock out a brain region for about 20 minutes to 40 minutes and then look at its effect on, um, on, on say, movement behavior. Um, and by combining these two techniques uh, and using what we call electrophysiology, um, you can try and begin to understand what kind of computations the brain had to do to make you move your arm. So remember earlier in the conversation, I was telling you about self-driving cars. So imagine if instead of moving your limbs, you've got to move the, the steering wheel of your car and all you had was um, a person's brain and the steering wheel. You don't really need limbs anymore. You can use these understanding of these computations and use the thoughts of a person, which is what you know, you're trying to pick up from this electrophysiology to actually drive the steering wheel. So the eventual aim of this work is to develop things like brain-machine interfaces. Um, so the work has important implications for people with brain damage, who uh, like, like people with Parkinson's disease or people with stroke, to these motor areas that are unable to move. And it also has important implications for the kind of technologies you can develop where you can just use thoughts to drive uh, various kinds of motors in the world. On a more fundamental level, we understand how the motor system works and how it communicates with other areas of the brain, such as the sensory systems. Remember, I was telling you about how when you look at an object, your visual system helps you locate it, and then your, your motor system understands the location and then it drives your arms to, to go and grab that object. Um, so we can now understand how that communication happens. And while doing this, I kind of stumbled upon this other, you know, interesting bit. And that's the most interesting part of my work is, you know, one project could take you on to things in a completely different direction. So when we were working around with like things to do with um, how auditory information affects uh, motor action, we started um, getting engaged in how the brain responds to music because uh, the relationship between the auditory system and the motor system is particularly important in uh, in music. And one of the things we've realized was that if you knocked out the motor system, uh, which is not related to how you hear at all, um, it changes the way you perceive uh, uh, structured regularities in music. So, for example, if you listen to something very rhythmic, if I knocked out some parts of your motor system, you perceive those rhythms very differently. So um, I'm, I'm also very interested in, in music and especially in jazz music where these rhythms are very important and it's very important for us to understand how the brain processes these things. And what we learn is that it isn't purely done through the auditory system. It is actually done in good part through the motor system, which you might think has almost nothing to do with hearing at all. No. So here is an example of how, you know, work that was intended to, you know, help self-driving cars and helping people rehabilitate after uh, brain injury, it kind of informs us about something completely different, which is about how the brain processes music. Now, when you say that knocking out, um, knocking out certain motor functions alters the way you interpret rhythms, what does that, what does that mean in terms of in terms of interpreting the rhythms, like what what changes within the way your body sees them? So let's say if you hear um, a, a popular song that's got a certain beat structure, 
um, your ability to say dance to that music, your ability to move, move to that music or march to that music um, is dependent on the predictability of that rhythm. But if you knock out your motor region, you are unable to make that prediction. Like you don't know when the next beat will arrive, so to speak. I see. Okay. So it so, suggests that, yeah, your ability to sort of to follow along a piece of music uh, comes from, you know, regularities in that piece of music. But the, even though you hear it through your auditory system, detecting that regularity actually comes from your motor system. Okay. So, so when you found, you know, this, this other branch of study, uh, i.e. in the way that your body interprets music, given given a certain level of funding, do you do you have the free reign to, you know, design your own experiment to determine how your body would interpret music? Are you are you designing new experiments? Are you building on old ones? How how does that work? That's a good question. So so when I then got into music uh perception, this this different area, um I, I then came to realize that there's a, actually there are a number of scientists who are working on just this idea of how you could use rhythm and music to say help patients with Parkinson's disease to get regularity in their in their gait because you, if you've seen anyone with Parkinson's disease they have a very shuffling sort of uh, walking mechanism and and they lose their their fluency of walking um, but providing them with rhythmic auditory stimulation can get them to start walking again so. When we started making these discoveries, we, of course, ran our results by the scientific community that studies um, music and movement, and, and they were very excited by it. So then I found um, some people that know more about it than I do, um, and I started collaborating with them. And then we wrote another grant to the federal government saying, look, we got these other results that um, have a lot of promise. Um, and now we propose to do these other experiments, um, which emerged from a previous line of work, which is still ongoing, and we're still making discoveries in, in, in brain-computer interfaces. But can you fund this other work? And then that went through a, you know, a very rigorous review process, and we got funded for doing that, too. So now we're running a, a parallel uh, research program, which is almost entirely on um, music, and, and motor control. Would you say your work is oriented towards communication with other people, or is it more scientific invest, like individual scientific investigation and analysis of data, um, or I guess even separately, the uh, ability to publish said data and your research? Um, I think it's all of the above. Um, unless you're able to do these experiments independently, you wouldn't have a good solid knowledge of what these results are. And your laboratory results mean nothing unless you can communicate that to both stakeholders, both to your scientific community, because your credibility depends on how much your scientific community um, appreciates your work. And like I was telling you at the very early part of this conversation, uh, and then communicating this work to people to so they can feel excited about this work. Uh, is a very important aspect of, of this. So, and especially since this is taxpayer-funded research, uh, we want to make sure that um, regular people, people, you know, uh, citizens who are funding this research, are aware that scientists are working on these problems. Um, so, and every time 
we reach these points where when Congress tries to cut science funding and all that, it largely stems from a misunderstanding because Congress doesn't really quite understand what the applications of this work are and why it's important. Um, and, and communicating with the public directly, with the taxpayer directly, is a good way for us to make everyone aware of how important this work is. And not only that, how important this work is in keeping um, the research enterprise in this country competitive. So part of the reason why I think we have expertise in technology and why we are doing well in many areas is because of critical investment in science and basic science research that's been going on for um, several decades in, in, in this country. Um, and, you know, and, and supporting the backbone of that research enterprise is a crucial aspect of, of maintaining American competitiveness in, in, in multiple walks of life. It, it seems to me, and I guess this is objectively true as well, that it's, it's a very, very specialized, skill dependent field. What drove you to get to where you are? What interest spurred, spurred you to become a professor of of cognitive, I believe, information sciences? Most importantly, I mean, I, I like making fundamental discoveries. Um, even as a child, I like sort of just playing with various, you know, little things and, you know, trying to combine things and seeing what happens. So running and doing experiments was something that I really, really enjoyed doing. Uh, and I also have a fiercely independent streak. Uh, I did not want to work for... Um, a boss or somebody that sets your agenda and tells you what to do. I really wanted to build my own research program. Um, and then when you combine the two, you have this sort of need to learn and trying to, you know, unpack something and trying to understand as much of it as you can. Uh, and you combine that with the need for, uh, independently, you know, going where your mind goes. Um, it, it, it became more and more obvious to me that, um, I, I should be looking uh, into becoming a professor uh, for a living. Uh, I tried my hand at other things, and I realized that uh, this is what suits my temperament, my personality, and what I do best. Um, and so, like I said, uh, being a professor is something I enjoy so much. I feel like going to work every day is like going on vacation. Do you, in becoming a professor, is there a absolute set of requirements uh in terms of education like uh uh does the past ha uh, have to involve grad school uh uh getting your phd working in labs and then and then becoming a professor or, or, or are there other methods of getting there right fortunately or unfortunately um there there are no shortcuts um professor jobs are very scarce uh, mostly because they're jobs for life. Um, and so it takes an enormous amount of time commitment, uh, doing an undergraduate degree and doing a master's and a PhD and possibly postdocing uh, for somewhere between five and, you know, in some years before you can land one of these positions. Sorry. If you don't, uh, mind me asking, how, how many years of education did it take to get, to get where you are? Ten years of formal education. Four years of an undergraduate degree and six years of a graduate degree. Um, I had, there was a short break in between when I, I worked doing something else. Um, and then I trained as a postdoc for four years where I, it wasn't education, but it was more uh, an apprenticeship. 
So I'd say 10 years of formal education plus four years of sort of residency style training um, before I could become a person who had, um, you know, his own lab. Okay. And then it's very hard landing these positions. So we're currently searching for uh, a professor at the moment. And for each position opening, uh, we get somewhere between uh, maybe a couple hundred applicants. Uh, and these are all top applicants, all of them with PhDs and uh, many years of postdoctoral experience. Uh, and it's, it's brutally competitive to get one of these jobs. So one of the sad things, I think, in the, in the academic pipeline is that um, a lot of people don't make it who are very talented and who should really become professors don't make it this far because, um, you know, somewhere uh, they get squeezed out of the pipeline. And this is especially sad um, in because we want to have a very diverse uh, professoriate. And, and sadly, this is not the case. So, for example, uh, women or underrepresented minorities um, get squeezed out of the pipeline much earlier. And so, sadly, the professoriate is not as representative as the population should be. So we would really like to have uh, well over half the professoriate as women and a much larger representation of, of underrepresented minorities in, in the profession. But sadly, because of how competitive the, the pipeline makes these things to be, um, we lose a lot of diversity in the process. And that's something we're working very actively to address right now. What What advice would you give to, to any young person aspiring to be aspiring to be a professor in in whatever field i'd say persistence is probably the most important thing um getting used to um rejection without taking it personally because a lot of times you know your result you're doing experiments your results might not work and for a lot of people if things don't work a couple times it just makes sense to just wind up and move on to something else but if you're going to become a scientist or a professor, which is sort of, or a professor scientist like I am, um, you've just got to persist through those setbacks. Um, and not just for like a short period, but these setbacks might be, um, over a long course of time. Um, so not losing sight of the big picture. So if there, if you really want to understand how certain neurons in the motor cortex work, uh, you're not going to find the answer tomorrow. But you need to be extremely patient and diligent and systematic about how you approach the problem uh, and be willing to deal with setbacks here and there. And these rejections happen not just because an experiment doesn't work. You might you know, have get some results and you're finding those results hard to publish because your scientific community is not buying your, um, your explanation. Uh, and then even if you get all this and you publish all these papers and then you apply for a job and... Uh, and you don't get it because there are, you know, 200 other people that are equally or better qualified than you are. Um, but not giving up and persisting and, and being tenacious about wanting to do this really badly is probably the most important quality. So uh, many people would say being smart or being uh, really good at what you do is very important. That is important, no doubt. Um, but I find that people who persevere are people who are, who are patient and who are willing to delay their gratification a little bit and not look for immediate benefits. Uh, if, if that's the kind of thrill you want, there are probably other professions out there where 
the uh, the benefit of what you do can be uh, more immediately accessible. So let's say if you're working, if you're a neurologist, you could maybe work with a patient and you could help them, um, you know, uh, regain some abilities that they didn't have today um, in a week. Um, but by the time some of our work um, enters the application space, um, it could be anywhere between five and 20 years. So being patient and persistent in that time scale becomes very important too. I've heard. So in a nutshell, patience. Yeah, I guess the most important virtue. Sorry. No, no, no problem. I've heard, I've heard that a couple of times. Not, not necessarily patience, but just you know, understanding when to push through setbacks. A couple of times. A couple of times. I think this is a, a part of of being in a very challenging profession. Yeah. Lastly, uh, to kind of wrap it up, first, is there anything that I missed that, that you want to touch on? No, I think you covered a lot of things, and uh, I hope you got a, a reasonable sense about what I do and, um, and, and what being a professor stands for and what it means. Um, but the one thing that I wanted to also say is one of the most exciting things about what I work on and what I you know, didn't mention so far is the ability to influence minds. So I have a classroom, I've got students. So I, one of the things I really enjoy doing is inspiring people and motivating them so they can achieve amazing things. And probably uh, one of the things that people don't talk about enough uh, in, in, in being in the academic profession is the amazing opportunity you have in shaping other people's minds and making them inspire, making them better human beings. And and I take that responsibility very seriously, uh, as cliched as that sounds, because um, it's as important a function of what I do um, as, you know, making discoveries and working in the laboratory and communicating with the public and all of that. That's a quality that seems to be very specific to, to your profession. Like, I haven't talked to anybody who's mentioned that, and off the top of my head, I can't think of, un- think of anybody who who I I wouldn't say has the power, but has the has the ability to influence minds like that. I think I think that's very interesting. Uh, right. I'm 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 not saying that we're the only ones who could. I mean, I'm sure. Right. You right. Minds, if you are, um, you, you know, I I've been very influenced by people who are not, you know, academics. I'm very inspired by, let's say, President Obama or, um, you know, Nelson Mandela or you know or, or somebody like that. Um, but at the same time, um. Through education and through talking to your students, you can inspire them by even leading them on to work that uh, they might not have heard of, and that could put them on the pathway towards um, something that they didn't even know they had in themselves. Right. Yeah. Uh, I th- I think that covers most of what I wanted to talk about. Um. Lastly, if you if you weren't if you weren't where you are right now as a as a professor working in your laboratory what what do you think what what do you think you would be doing oh it's a very good question um i, I every day i wake up and i i feel very thankful that i'm doing this that i i've often not thought about what else i would be doing um but if i were if i could wish that I had the kind of concept to be able to do something, I'd, I'd probably be a musician. Um, um, I, I don't know in what shape or form, but yeah, that, that's the uh, something in the creative arts 
is probably what I would consider doing. Um, and I, I do not really see myself in, um, in any, any other profession really. Um, um, so yeah, so I'd say if I weren't in the laboratory, I'd probably be on a concert stage somewhere, uh, except that I, I don't think I'm in, you know, even remotely talented to uh, actually make music that people will pay money to listen to. Do, do you do you play any instruments? Um, I do. I play I play the drums. I play tabla. I uh, play uh, West African and Latin percussion. Um, many of those things I've learned through osmosis and through various stages of my life. Yeah. Uh, and when I was in grad school, I used to play in a band. Uh, we used to play mostly uh, uh, funk music, um, mostly sort of um, uh, African American funk from the 1970s. Uh, James Brown and music inspired by things like that. that Sadly, I, I I was not good enough at it to take that as a profession, uh, or or I'd be a you know a millionaire rock star right now, and uh, and maybe you'd be interviewing me with a completely different um, agenda. Yeah. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I actually learned a lot because on the surface level, uh, music and and cognitive neuroscience seem to be unrelated, but through our conversation, it seems that they're interrelated very deeply. You know, I just I just learned a lot about the way the way a a, a job as a professor works. You know, and then that there's so much associated with it and again this seems to be a common theme that you you always have many responsibilities outside of you know what what your official title would would describe you as being so i I think that's very interesting and again thank you very much well thank thank you for for talking to me and i really enjoyed the conversation and you are a very good interviewer so um if you're seriously thinking about i don't know uh radio journalism i'd say uh, you've probably already got the skills to be a shining star in that in that domain thank you thank you very much that brings us to the end of this episode a sincere thank you to mr balasubramaniam for taking the time to talk to me and really explore the nuances both general and specific of all of my questions this interview was great for me. Not only did I get an insight into the work of a professor, but I also learned a lot about some fascinating work on the human body in motion, stuff that I've never even thought about. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from this interview. Be sure to check out andbeyond.how and my profile, gautemeyer28 on medium.com, for some other things like writings or album reviews. I'll have more coming soon. Thank you again, until next time. <laughs>